De la patrulla de Minos de California. Weather headlines for today, yes. Welcome to the Revenue Generator Podcast, an I Hear Everything production. In this podcast, you'll hear how industry leaders integrate sales, marketing, product, and customer success into a single business unit with a common goal of optimizing their revenue cycle. We'll unearth how innovators integrate data, technology, people, and processes to expedite demand generation and increase recurring revenue. Sit back, tune in, and get ready to meet a member of the Revenue Generation. Here's the host of the Revenue Generator podcast, the CMO of Lean Data, Doug Bell. Welcome to the Revenue Generator podcast, where we members of the Revenue Generation share solutions for how you can integrate your business to optimize revenue. I'm your host and the CMO of Lean Data, Doug Bell. And today, we're going to talk about the B2B sales battle, automation versus personalization. Joining us is Dan Englander, who is the founder and CEO of Sales Schema, which is a fractional new business team for marketing agencies and B2B service companies. Sales Schema helps B2B companies customize their sales and marketing processes so they can win big fish clients. And today, Dan and I are going to discuss finding balance between automated and personalized sales. Okay, here's my conversation with Dan Englander, the founder and CEO at Sales Schema. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Doug, thank you for having me. I am thrilled by a couple of things. The first is you're a founder. I have to give props to founders every time I get them on. This is not an easy journey. I talked to quite a few folks that are in that place, so props to you. Thank you. Yeah, appreciate it. And the other thing is you're an author. You've got a book coming out here really shortly in the next week or so. So that's a big deal. That's a lot of work. Hope to get to talk about the book today as well. Yeah, yeah, me too. It was tough, but you know, I find that the toughest part was the editing and the last mile of it, you know, which tends to be the case, I think. Fantastic. Well, you wrote the book quickly and then somebody else had to unwind things for you. It sounds like, yeah, but that's not an easy journey to be sure. Yeah, there are various friends and people and they have a God of mercy on their souls for <laughs> how much work they had to do. So there you go. It takes a village. So Dan, I love this topic, by the way, because so much of, I think, of what we're trying to get to in B2B selling and marketing is we're trying to find that right balance between how do we automate people, process and data but at the same time, we know that a great prospect experience typically wins the day. So how do you balance these two things out? Dan, I know there's a whole book that really helps people understand this topic. We're going to talk about that tomorrow in detail. But what's your first step in trying to recognize, first of all, whether you're out of balance? And then how do you help people kind of find that balance? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. And I think to frame it out a little bit, like we've been sort of sold to false extremes in the sales process. At least I was when I was coming up as a salesperson and then managing it on my own, you know, as an entrepreneur for a team, which is this sort of like constant automation of everything and, and this sort of paint by numbers over optimizing for, for one metric at the expense of everything else, whether it's open rate or reply rate or meeting rate or something like that. And the fact is, you know, for me historically in previous lives and now for our clients in this business, what we're selling is not really for mass consumption. Most of the time, you know, you might have several thousand companies you're going after or something like that, but it's not anyone and everyone that's a fit for most B2B offerings. But yet we're, there's a lot of these sort of bad lessons from consumer marketing that we've brought over. So the idea of just kind of like 
over optimizing and doing what we call, you know, the automation gang thing, which I write about in the book doesn't really work. And then on the other side of town, you have the love letter gang, right? And this is the idea that, oh, I'm going to research everything about a prospect and look at what they posted on Twitter and write them a custom love letter. Sorry for the sirens. I'm in Manhattan, which was just chaos here, you know? Amsterdam in 92nd is background of this great conversation, folks. There you go. Exactly. They're after me. Um, (laughs) Anyway, so it's a love letter gang, you know, the idea that you're going to write this custom love letter every day. And the fact is that doesn't work because, you know, maybe you get out five a day and then it gets busy and you're not really optimizing your time very well. So predictably, the, the answer is finding that sweet spot. And to get into the weeds a little bit, and if you're a sales ops person or your salesperson, what this tends to look like is there's still work involved. But instead of backloading the work and doing the thing of spitting out a big list and then hemming and hawing about subject lines and funnels for months. It's more about front loading the work and kind of creating almost like this Mad Libs situation where you might be contacting from as few as 20 people a day up to like, you know, hundred or 200. And that's really like what we found to work really well for clients to get more academic. I think that we're leaving this stage of like data alone being valuable. You know, we've heard so much about that in Silicon Valley, you know, where you are, that, that was, that ruled the day for a while. And it's more about, you see this across the board, you know, you have the SWAS thing, the software with a service model becoming bigger. It's more about like, what, what can you actually use? What's the data that works? And one more thing, and I'll give you the floor again. What I'm writing a lot about in this book in relationship sales at scale is cross-referencing everybody that you could ever contact with the people that are actually likely to take a call with you, right? Based on a relationship or personal commonality or something like that. So it's, it's almost like Dunbar's number, which is 150 acquaintances you might know and expanding that out by another few rungs, you know, by thirds to the people that would take a call with you, but haven't yet and focusing in on those people. So that's, that's a lot of what, what we're up to and a lot of what, what I think about. Yeah. Okay. I I almost uh, had this picture in my head and again, Back to this idea that you're in New York and, you know, I have West Side Story in my head and I have the automated gang and I have the personalization gang and they're dancing and they're pulling out knives, right? And they're, yeah. I think that this is a balance that, you know, if you get this right, Dan, this is big, right? Because the automation wave really, I think we're still in the middle of it, right? And I think you're seeing some of that personalization wave swing back against it. But the automation wave, you know, and it's still happening, right? It's the thing that's produced all these unicorns and sales tech. It's how do I get into this deep niche? And then how do I automate the crud of that particular niche? And then you end up with all these columns of automation, all these silos of automation that end up being disconnected from each other. We look at that and we go, geez, I'm not sure why I'm hitting the point of diminishing returns. And then in comes the, you know, snapping here, the West Side Story crowd, the personalization crowd, they come, and they go, well, you know what? You can't really perform at scale just by repeating the same crap again and again. It's a podcast, so I, I think I can say the word crap. And so really what you're trying to do is bridge this gap. And, and so help us understand like that first step in, and, and by the way, help people understand to recognize whether or not they've got this challenge. What's one of the kind of heuristics, if you will, that will help people go, oh my gosh, I've got this problem. Yeah, it's a really good question. So I think, I think the first heuristic is just asking like, is, you know, talking about your total addressable market, right? And there's not, there's not one number, but, you know, I think we find that for most of our clients, they might have as few as, you know, four figures worth of companies up to like five figures worth of other accounts they could sell to maybe occasionally six, but 
that's kind of the world that you're in. And then the question becomes like, you know, there's so much incentive from people like me and gurus coming on shows to say like, this is the best thing in the world and you should only do this. The fact is like everything can be ROI positive. Me getting on a podcast is ROI positive. Sending somebody lumpy mails are positive. Cold calling can work. LinkedIn can work. All these things can work. The question is like, what's the best thing for you if you've got limited time and bandwidth? And a lot of the times we're working with, you know, either a full stack salesperson that's doing a million things or somebody that's juggling client work at the same time or an owner or whatever. And for, and our experience has been, and granted it's biased is that the, the best thing is to actually build the relationship with your finite market, you know, sooner rather than later and de-risk the conversation. So you really using that frame of like, how do you just get that door open and have a conversation like we are now? Because to talk about automation a little bit, and, and I, I might have lost your question, <laughs> I apologize. There's a point of diminishing returns to that automation. Like, for example, in a sales context, once you've had a conversation with somebody, automating has much greater risks and costs than not automating, right? Before that, yeah. And, and my argument's not against automation writ large or saying you shouldn't automate things. It's just being more deliberate about it as opposed to putting it on a pedestal. Bigger than the sales world, I think that one of the biggest challenges is like what deciding what tools to even use, you know, there's, there's like this galaxy of of tools and it's really more about what can you do with them? And given that there's only so many hours in the day, which ones do you use and how do you use them? Right. And there's so many companies moving into that, that splash sort of world. Right. So that's bigger than what I'm talking about, but yeah. I think you make an excellent point. And I think this idea of automation versus personalization is really a rubric, right? It's a way of getting us to talk about, kind of the swings between the two. And, and I, I would agree. I, I think, you know, if you're not automated, what are you doing, right? On some level, it's it's not whether you should automate or not. It's to what degree are you counting automation to carry your water? And what's the point where you're realizing yeah, it's so far? So I don't think we're saying to the audience, don't automate. I think we're saying to the audience is don't count on automation to be as performant as you think it needs to be. That's the start. Begin thinking about personalization first. And, and Dan, I've got to ask you, I thought this ended when ABM became a trend, right? Didn't this whole thing end? Isn't this done? Why are we having this conversation, Dan? Well, I think we're having the conversation because the amount of distraction keeps going up and the amount of competition for attention has gone up by orders of magnitude with COVID. And, you know, obviously it was going on before that COVID's the accelerant, which is, you know, wrote at this point. So I, I think that's the main thing fueling it. And I think that the answer to it isn't necessarily more touch points. That's one thing that we've been sold a lot of is like, how many times have you heard you need 20 touch points to break through with a particular buyer. And I'm not saying that persistence isn't important or that that's always untrue, but it's optimizing for a metric that you can see at the cost of everything else, whether that's reputational damage or just not being as effective as you could, which is the more likely thing to, to have happen. So what we see is like, we're, 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 it's not like we're not doing follow-ups or we're doing outreach for our clients to get meetings. It's not the main feature, the, the main component of this. And oftentimes the things that are breaking through are very timeless and very human and very relational and less about case studies or funnels or all these sorts of things, at least in in this B2B context we're we're working with. And I mean, I'll give you an example. One, oftentimes just opening an email with hope your your Thursday afternoon is going well is a completely different thing than not having that, right? Because it indicates, oh, you've sent this email at the time that I'm getting it, right? And 
it's it's not going to be the only thing that works you know it's not going to get you all the way but it's it's something and that that's something that automation can do and and there's more than that i mean one of the biggest things that we do the campaign we're starting with nine times out of ten is what we call relationship mapping right so our clients already have this rolodex instead of going in cold to somebody they don't know at all and hoping that they have a need for some software product or an agency service or whatever what if you were to just go to the next sort of like Dunbar's number out to the people that are friends of friends that are in your target accounts and then say, we know these people in common or even ask your friend for the intro in a way that's specific and easy for them to complete and honest and open that does take a little more work at the front end, but then the payoff at the back end is so much higher and almost nobody's thinking about things in this deliberate way. They're just trying to say, yeah, just spin me out a list on a, you know, from whatever list source and I'm going to put it through a funnel and hope for the best and send them some ads and so on. But we're past that at this point. There's, you know, every market is getting skeptical faster than it ever did. If you think about like stages of market sophistication, you know, people are moving through those stages much quicker than they used to. And then at the bottom stage, which Gene Schwartz has written a lot about, it's all about the scarce resources trust. It's no longer information as, as you know, we know. So that's, that's a lot, but hopefully that, that's helpful to somebody. Yeah. Again, what we're talking about here is a shift that was in process prior to the pandemic, right? And that shift was that most buying is happening online right now. Sorry, most of the research process, I should say, Dan, is happening online. And to the degree that sales organizations are seeing less and less and less and less, meaning they have less and less and less control over the buying process, the selling process. So their window is super narrow. And so this idea of you know automation being able to drive activity, that really started to fade out once people you know kind of started using digital as the front door. And, and frankly, I think some of their experiences as consumers on the P2C side set expectations for us as B2B sellers. You know, the number that stands out to me right now is that either Gardner or Forrester said that, you know, 77% of B2B buyers felt like the selling, the experience that they had was either a bad experience or an overly complex experience. So we just haven't caught up in a lot of ways. We just haven't gotten there. So I'm back to the West Side story, Dan. I'm back there. I've got the automation team. I've got the experience team. And we've kind of talked about automation as being a predecessor. So they're not really things that we would say, let's not do, Right. But as we're thinking about that potential conflict, what are some of the metrics that you point to and go, ah, these again, these are heuristics of kind of selling of the past and the idea of automation, not really being directed at helping people versus what are some of the metrics that are more common when people are thinking about personalization that are heuristics to you in terms of like, yes, I can help or you guys are in good shape? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think that's like the, the fundamental challenge is a lot of the times there aren't really great metrics for it other than, you know, just the, you probably could use sentiment analysis and that probably is getting better. And I'm sure there's, there's plenty of tools that'll do that. But really, I mean, it's like if you're doing a campaign and, you know, more than half of the responses or 30% or 20% or more of the responses even are take me off your list, go away. I don't want to talk to you. That probably tells you something. I'll answer that question hopefully in a better way. I think if you're digging into people that are doing a lot of outbounds in a lot of sales, one of the biggest things they'll complain about is, well, we got all of our messages are going to spam. We've gotten the domain shut down or something like that. And that's because, you know, all of these platforms, Google, Microsoft, et cetera, have gotten smarter and it's become a lot more like SEO, you know, where you it's harder to just like rank a site by doing some like black hat 
keyword stuffing thing somebody did in the 90s, right? You actually have to put up, by and large, I'm sure there's some hacks, but you have to put up content that people want to see and it has to be valuable and you have to have an authority site. And then you get ranked and then you, you know, make a lot of money. Outbound is becoming a mature market, I think, because the robots are getting smarter and because there's more competition for attention. So that means that the main metric is that even if you're not getting absolutely everybody you reach out to, to agree to take a call or whatever, at least 90% of those people are not mad at your message, right? And are mad that you're in their inbox. So like, oh, you did your research, you're in the right place, so on. So that means, you know, dotting the I's, crossing the T's, it's later, and front loading a lot of that work. I think to get, to get into metrics a little bit more, I think a lot of that is is looking at higher open rates, you know, like much like we we're often gunning for 50% plus open rates, the sentiment of the reply, not just the reply itself. And then actually, once you get somebody that wants to talk and you get somebody into the funnel, this is a little bit bigger than that. It's like looking at metrics that are falsifiable, you know, did they take a meeting with you or didn't they, are they at your proposal stage or not? I think once you get into this word qualified, it's just a lot of self-deception and a lot of making the numbers just reflect the thing that you want them to be, right? So th- those are two things that come to mind. That's really interesting. And one thing I want to draw out of that, Dan, is this idea of your prospects inbox being equivalent to the SERPs. You talked about SEO equivalency on some level, and you're right. The platforms that, first of all, are sending your emails, but more importantly, the platforms that are ingesting emails are getting better and better at really filtering out the garbage, right? I don't think I've looked at my junk folder in forever because I trust it, right? And so what you're saying is think about it, and everybody understands what a search engine result page is, right? Even my grandma has done some searching on things before and said, I I can find what I need to or I can't find what I need to. But have that image in your mind and think about what you're competing with in an inbox, right? That's really interesting. So you're not just competing against, and by the way, you are competing against emails that are from internal resources, but you're also competing against other vendors' emails and who can be more personalized over time. So that's something I want to draw out of the damn and sure people think about it because that's a great way to think about it before you're developing that copy and thinking about personalization. Are there other hidden tips you have, Dan, for people in terms of thinking about how am I doing a better job in terms of personalization and competing with other vendors? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest one is not necessarily jumping to just like going in completely cold with people, right? I think figuring out where you have that that leverage and that strength, which is for most people, especially if they've been around for a little while or they have they've had a business for a number of years, it's the Rolodex, you know, and, and even just the stuff that seems really basic and like it does, like it wouldn't work, can work. Like the people that are in your backyard, you, you know, there's so much about being able to work anywhere and it's true. You should be able to work across the board, but you're going to have way easier time getting meetings and close business geographically, you know, that's, that's a campaign we often do. And it's very easy to identify those people and reaching out and saying, Hey, I'm in Austin, you know, I'm in Santa Clara, you know, the Valley is going to be a tougher not to crack, but other places aren't right. Uh, admittedly. So, th- so that, those are, those are a couple of things that come to mind. And another thing that, I, that I've written a lot about in, in relationship sales and scale, you know, in the book is I think that I don't want to, you know, go on a high horse against the walled gardens and against getting business from, from ads and social media. I'm not, I know there's probably lots of inbound marketers listening and I'm not saying you shouldn't do that or that it can't be really successful, but I do think the risk and reward ratio has gotten less advantageous as the years go along. I mean, how many businesses have we seen wiped out from search algorithm changes, from ads becoming too expensive, from 
just whatever from a cruel and unusual old Testament God, right. With these things. So I think it is important to have at least one, if not a few channels that are on protocols that aren't owned by anyone. Email is one of them, you know, email is a protocol. It's not owned by anyone. Yes. Google can affect it, but ultimately it's predicated on the idea that you have to be able to contact people. You don't know what we're doing right now. Podcast is a protocol. Nobody owns this. Even just your email newsletter on more of like a marketing side, as opposed to a sales side is really important. So I, I think that, oh, yeah, all those things are, are going to matter a lot more as time goes on and as the social media landscape becomes more fragmented. I think your time is brilliant, too. Right? We've got a cookie list future ahead of us. So there's a lot of inbound marketers listening right now going, what am I going to do? Right. Heck of a lot of software solutions out there that are hoping to solve that problem for them. You also, as I mentioned before, kind of tongue in cheek. We've got the account based motion happening out there. A lot of companies haven't figured it out. I would tell you. This is my second go around trying to figure out a great ABM approach. I've been doing this for a while. It takes a lot of time to get going. But one of the key things, one of the central tenets of account-based marketing is personalization. And one of the key tenets is understanding those accounts on a really a DNA level so you can have a better engagement level. And you know, frankly, at the end of the day, I think people are going to lean into outbound as a way of compensating for the fact that inbound is going to get harder and harder. So Dan, I'd say I really enjoyed this conversation. I want to dig a bit more. I know the book is coming out soon, and I want to understand this idea of relationship sales at scale to get a little bit better understanding because we're kind of nibbling on the edges of that topic. I want to get there. So thank you for being on the podcast today. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Yeah, fantastic. Okay. Well, that wraps up this episode of the Revenue Generator Podcast. Thanks to Dan Englander, the founder and CEO at Sales Schema for joining us. In part two of this interview, which we'll publish tomorrow, Dan and I are going to dig in and talk about relationship sales at scale. If you can't wait until our next episode, we'd like to learn more about Dan. You can find a link to his LinkedIn profile in our show notes. You can contact him on Twitter, where his handle is at Dan's place, or visit his company website at saleschema.com. Just one link in our show notes I want to tell you about. If you didn't have a chance to take notes while listening to this podcast, head on over to revgenpod.com where we have summaries of all of our episodes and contact information for our guests. You can subscribe to our weekly newsletter, apply to be a speaker on the Revenue Generator podcast, or you can even share your revenue generation questions, which we'll answer live on our show. Of course, you can always reach out on social media. Our handle is at RevGenPod on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or you can contact me directly. My handle is Market Advocate. If you haven't subscribed yet and want a daily stream of RevGen strategies in your podcast feed, We're going to publish an episode every day during the work week. So hit that subscribe button in your podcast app and we'll be back in your feed on the next business day. Okay, that's all for today. But until next time, keep cranking because the revenue isn't going to generate itself.